On this podcast, we're usually talking about issues surrounding borders and the issues with the systems of immigration. But sometimes the border in question means a lot more than that. And the border dividing Israel and Palestine is definitely an example of this because it's a very complicated issue that has been the subject of much debate and conflict. Now, for us to talk about immigration and the border, there needs to be a border between the two countries. And while the United Nations has proposed several borders, none of them have been accepted by both sides. And currently, the border is marked by a wall, which has been additionally a source of controversy and conflict between the two countries. And the conflict between these two sides dates back to hundreds of years ago. Now, before we've talked about the legal systems of immigration and some of the psychological effects that can come from immigration, but today we're focusing more on Jewish immigration, which has been a central factor in the history of the conflict between Israel and Palestine. Furthermore, the establishment of the state of Israel in 1948 resulted in a significant influx of Jewish immigrants who were seeking a homeland in the region due to the oppression that they faced in World War II and the Holocaust. And this led to tensions, unfortunately, with the Palestinian population as the land was already inhabited. And understanding the historical context of Jewish immigration helped shed light on the complexities of this conflict. And today we're luckily joined by Ghadi, a Palestinian citizen of Israel, Yuval, an Israeli, and Kellen, an American. Thanks for tuning in. Welcome back to Voices Across the Border. It's the 29th of July. It's a beautiful day in San Diego, California, where I'm with my fellow Hands of Peace participants, one of which has already been on the podcast before. Um, So I'll have him introduce himself first. All right. So you guys have, this is not the first time hearing from me. My name is Ghadi Khouri. I'm a Palestinian uh, citizen of Israel and I'm Christian. Hello, hello. I'm Yuval Erden. I am from Center Israel, uh, Ramat Gan. Uh... Hi, my name is Cohen. I'm from Encinitas, San Diego, and I'm a UW freshman. So we've been doing a program for the past couple of weeks now that centers around finding peace between the Israeli and Palestinian sides of the conflict. And I've discussed various topics with this group of people And they're very, very intelligent, but they have diverse opinions. So with that, I'm just going to open it up, start off with the question. And this is for anyone. Um, What do you guys think the main factors that have contributed to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict are? So I can start with that. Uh, I can start by saying that uh, there are two sides of the conflict, uh, like most conflicts. And I can make the claim that... uh, the main cause of the conflict would be each side claiming a right to the land and uh, to that one land being one, uh, one piece of land. Uh, that land holds, uh, holds a great importance, not just to Jews and Muslims, but also to Christians. You guys know, of course, Jerusalem. So I think, uh, yeah, uh, having a right of return to each of the people uh, causes, uh, mainly, mainly causes the conflict. Uh. I think it depends on how far uh, we go back in history. Like, uh, if we go to like the 1800s, 1900s, uh, the 
like one of the uh, biggest causes would be, for example, uh, the Zionist movement, the all the conflicts within the Zionist movement, uh, all the uh, anti-Semitism happening around Europe at the time. Uh, if we go like around uh, 1948, it would be uh, straight the invasion to the land, uh, the claiming of it. Uh, if we go to today, it's just uh, probably uh, close-mindedness of people and the unwillingness to listen. I would say at a very surface level, it's the inability to coexist. But if we dive deeper into what that means today, it means there's a lack of accountability in the IDF, there's terrorist attacks from organizations such as Hamas and Islamic Jihad, and from both sides there's a relentless persistence to claim the entire territory and to reject peace from the other side. Thank you guys for that explanation to start us off. Um, and the, the next question, you know, might be a little bit more controversial, but it's an important one when you're discussing the conflict. And that is, do you believe that either side has a stronger claim to the land in question? And why or why not? And how do we address that? So I believe that Israel has a stronger claim to the land because of an Anglo-American Western law concept called adverse possession. And the idea behind it is that the people with the best claim to a land are the people who have done the most with it. And the way I see history is that during Israeli immigration, the Israelis or Jews at that time in the early 1800s brought with them agricultural and trade skills and developed that land. And those cities built during that time are the foundation of the modern state of Israel today. So would you say that the American land is our land we claim it yes okay so uh i'm gonna have to start off by saying i disagree with kellen uh completely on that uh idea i'm gonna say i'm gonna say what i think first then i'm gonna explain why i disagree uh of course being a palestinian i do prefer my people and i do see how my people would have a stronger claim for the land but i also think it's uh unnecessary to uh, discuss who has more right to a piece of land and it's not not just unnecessary instead of providing any uh, any uh, beneficiary uh, uh, like steps to the to the future it would it would hold us back because uh, the main argument not this is not Kellen's argument like I will debunk uh, Kellen's argument later but the main argument is the 2000 year old argument the one that says the Jewish people have a right to the land because of, uh, because of the, the kingdom of Israel that ex existed 2,000 years ago. And there are many reasons that argument is, uh, is flawed, uh, one of which, and the main reason is, you can always go back more in time, and you can always look back 5,000 years ago to where the Egyptians were here, and even more and more and more. So being here 2,000 years ago, I don't think gives Jews the right to the land. That is why I think uh, instead of discussing who has more right to the land, we should uh, focus on coexistence in the land under one state. Yeah. I, I'm going to respond to that. All right. uh, I completely agree with the fact or the statement that it doesn't matter whose land it is. Because frankly, whichever side's land it is, the solution to the conflict isn't to just hand everything over to either side. Uh, I somewhat agree with uh, Radi. Uh, I 
also don't think like that's necessarily a discussion right now, but I also think like I really think maybe neither could uh, at least nowadays claim more ownership to the land. Like, sure, 2,000 years ago, it might have been, like, a Jewish land, like, a Jewish-Israeli land. And, like, 100 years ago, it was definitely a Palestinian land. And now it's, like, it's a shared place. And, like Kellen said uh, in answer, I don't think, like, uh, trying to... Uh, I don't uh, think the solution is to hand everything back to uh, one group or another. Okay, so I forgot to answer uh, Kellen's argument of the... What was your claim? Adverse possession, Adverse possession which means uh, when a population develops a land, they have more right to the land. Uh, to begin with, we have uh, a fellow podcast host here. He asked, uh, he asked Kellen, what about the Americans? Do they have a right to the land? Kellen answered with yes, which is okay, in your opinion, it might be yes. Kellen's argument doesn't take into account uh, the hundreds of thousands of lives existent on that land when the, uh, when the Jewish immigration started. And uh, Kellen, you're basically, in my opinion, legitimizing settler colonialism, uh, even because it develops the land, and I don't believe... Uh, because a certain population develops the land, they have right uh, to to strip and to exile hundreds of thousands of people away from a certain land. I, I think you can justify right to the land and not the way the land was claimed. And that's what I'm saying. And I definitely do understand that there were a population in the land at that time, but there were also many Western accounts that the land was, for the most part, a barren wasteland. And... In the mid-1800s, the waves of Jewish immigration that began to be known as Aliyahs were what sparked much of the Arab immigration to that area and what developed the Arab population in the land today. Oh, yeah, I just wanted to say uh, that about something Kellen said that, uh, to like, the, no, sorry, Radi said that the main uh, well, claim right now is that 2,000 years ago uh, the land was uh, Jewish. I don't agree with that. I think maybe a long while ago that was the main claim. I think now it's it was kind of dropped, maybe devised a little between like religious people. I don't think that's a secular uh, person's opinion in Israel. All right, so if we're shifting our focus from you know, whose land is it and how does that history work to the current situation with Israel and Palestine? Do you think that the current leadership on either side, because there's controversy with both political atmospheres, do you think that the current leadership on either side is doing enough to work towards peace? No. I think the current, <laughs> I think the question, uh, like, I love this question because it sounds so neutral uh, with like everyone I'm sure in this circle knowing the current state of leadership in Israel is run by uh, extremist, uh, extreme uh, right wings, which I call terrorists. Not everybody does, but I think that at least some of them has like, like could be defined as terrorists. And I think they don't aim towards peace. They aim towards like uh, self-fulfilling uh, legislations. 
and were only firstly like introduced into the government uh, by a man, Benjamin Netanyahu, who wants uh, something like uh, for himself and not for his people. I think there's quite an obvious answer to that that we all know, which is uh, no. Uh, as Yvel said, the the govern uh, the 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 current government of Israel is not the best government, to say the least. Uh, but I also believe there is a uh, uh, bad leadership on both sides. Hamas also isn't the the best uh, role model to the for leadership. Uh, and what uh, what's really unfortunate is that in in the Israeli government right now. There's so much activism. You see every day hundreds of thousands of people go to uh, Tel Aviv to protest. And it's activism that takes away attention, in my opinion, from the Palestinian, uh, from the Palestinian issue, which is very unfortunate, in my opinion. Uh, I, I believe this issue is now overshadowing the... Uh, the Palestinian issue, which is unfortunate. I think, uh, like, I somewhat agree with what uh, Radi is saying, and I think, like, uh, besides, like, shifting it, a lot of the, even the relatively leftist protests, which there there are a lot of, there are pretty, like, uh, they are left, but they are, like, Jewish democratic left, and Jewish democratic uh, isn't necessarily anti-occupation. So even like what's considered like a left side progressive liberal isn't necessarily focusing uh, on the occupation and how to end it. So wait, just for the listeners really quick, could you define the occupation? Oh boy. Uh, <laughs> it's a tough one, but in modern day. In modern day, the, I think the occupation uh, is, uh, first of all, the claim to the land that uh, Israeli have, the uh, illegal uh, settlements. It would be the IDF uh, terrorizing uh, many uh, Arabs, uh, both PCIs and of Palestine. And yeah, that would, that's like nowadays, I think. Yeah, I, I think clearly the leadership on either side isn't doing enough to work towards peace. But I also don't think that the conflict is in a way right now where their interests are aligned with making peace. I think for Israel especially, having accountability in the IDF and having Israel stop their expansion in support of settlements isn't going to be in their interest to do so because the Israeli government right now is focusing on their own people and on economic development. And on the flip side of this, I think it's going to be very hard for things to change on the Palestinian side because violence is what I believe got them into their situation that they're in today in the first place. And I don't think it's going anywhere. So, I, I, know, I know what you're going to talk about. I want you to expand on what you meant by violence is what got them there in the first place. Well, violence in the area of Palestine towards Jews began in the early 1800 during the waves of immigration opposing it. And later on, during the Arab revolt in Palestine, there were further pogroms against the Jewish people. And even later, there was an attempt to appease this violence by creating a partition plan which was rejected by the Palestinian side, and they started a civil war. And in my eyes, that's how the violence and conflict began. 
So you said the violence started in 1800, uh, in the 1800s from the Palestinian side to the Jewish settlers coming in and the Aliyot, right? To respond that to is that, your claim. I, I don't know exactly which side threw the first rock, but the first large waves of violence were the 1936 revel and later 1947 civil war. All right, so if we talk about 1936 revel, uh, there's also 1929 we can talk about. But uh, in either case, there were not, uh, they're not violence caused by either side, Israel or, uh, or uh, Palestinians, I think. Uh, both sides got hurt. But as you know, in that time, there was a British mandate, uh, which, which sprung out many rules uh, on many occasions uh, that were not very good for either side. So I think making the claim that uh, that Arab violence was the main form of violence in that time is uh, just flat out uh, wrong. And yeah, did you make any other claim that? Well, I well, I see you've all reacting. I want to know what you think about that. Oh, uh, no comment. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> no, 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 I'm kidding. Uh, I just like I agree about like the British mandate was like hard on both sides. I think uh, the claim of violence then was mostly like aimed at the British mandate and everything else was just like collateral damage. So uh, before you continue, can you define for the people, just talk about the British mandate and what that meant in, in history for Israel and Palestine conflict? So uh, the British mandate <laughs> started in 1917. Uh, Britain took over because it was, uh, the, yeah, because it was, uh, uh, from what I know, they took over from the Ottomans. And uh, the reason for that being the main reason, one of the main reasons is the Swiss Canal and having uh, an easier way to reach uh, India and their uh, other colonies over there. Uh, the British mandate did not do any good for both sides. But I would strongly argue that it did uh, more good than bad on the Jewish side in the end. Uh, and I believe even during these, uh, during the mandate, 36, 29, there's also 37, uh, there's also books of London that were uh, passed. Uh, there were many assassinations of Arab leadership at the time, which wasn't as equal on the other side, uh, Jews. And respond to your partition plan claim. I don't think the partition plans were either fair or thoughtful of uh, the Palestinian side, because imagine being on a land and having a for having a foreigner come to the land and just wanting twenty whatever it is twenty ten five percent of the land. Why why should the Palestinians accept a compromise at that stage of the of the occupation? Well, to respond to that. The plan clearly was not fair. It was in favor of the Jews. But at least in part of the reason for that was that the Palestinian governance of the time, the Arab Higher Commission, boycotted the negotiations for the plan. Can I ask what the argument uh, is that's being made here? Well, the argument is that the violence started from the Palestinian side uh, as a reaction to this partition plan. And that is what happened. All right, so the violence, which I still don't believe is true, even if the violence started from the Palestinian side, it's not out of nowhere. Uh, the violence started uh, from, from huge numbers of immigration. They saw the intentions of their land being taken. They saw that some people think a lot, of, uh, pe a lot of Jews were buying property at the time, 
and buying property some people think okay they're just buying property that's not violent that's not but what they don't know is the is how hard uh the living situations uh were for arabs uh, that that was actually caused by the british mandate and they rushed to claim me that arabs started the violence which is not true and i've uh i've evidence to prove so but even if arabs did start the violence it wasn't out of uh, nowhere uh i don't know just thought like uh maybe today prediction plans would make more sense because of all the history we've uh, gone through but if we go back and think about it i feel like it's a little like i take your bag of cookies uh full of cookies and i'm like hey you wanna share this i just took this from you like you wanna count a little maybe like let's split it sure so clearly um there's a lot of politics at play here um, and I want to ask now, do you think that the conflict is primarily political or are there deeper cultural and historical factors at play? And if so, what do those factors mean? I think I'll start this by reiterating one of my previous statements, which is the driving factor of the conflict today is the inability to coexist. And I think religion plays a very large part in that because the Palestinian side is predominantly Muslim and the Israeli side is almost completely uh, Jewish. And there are completely different ways of life, different types of governments that both sides want, different cultures, and the ability to merge those is completely lacking. Uh, I think the cultural aspect of it is also inherently pol political because culturally uh, the Jewish Israelis are very very afraid of like change of what like what would happen if we would have had peace and so they uh, go back again and again to the same like uh, politicians this is why Benjamin Netanyahu has been in rule for I believe about 20 years now not uh, consequent consecutively all right, so I want to have a comment on what Kellen said. Uh, you you claim that it is more about religion than politics, or no, I, I mean, religion is one of the reasons it's very difficult for both sides to coexist. Okay, you said that religion is one of the main reasons it is difficult for both sides to coexist. Uh, I believe that may somewhat have grounds, but that's an agenda pushed by many Israeli officials mm -hmm. to try and. Uh, to try to delegitimize uh, a, mu a Muslim claim for the land. Uh, but in my opinion, it's mostly political. Uh, and uh, to give an example of uh, something where it proves uh, that it's political and it's not so much about religion, uh, we can look back at Shireen Abu Akhli's assassination, the world-renowned journalist. She was a Christian journalist, and at her funeral, yeah, at the funeral, it was in Jerusalem. Tens of thousands of people were marching uh, in protest. And uh, you could see it. You could look it up. Uh, there was a lot of violence from the IDF. What happened to the journalist? Uh, she was assassinated uh, by the IDF, which uh, the IDF doesn't, uh, doesn't officially admit it. But uh, there are, there's much evidence, and there was an investigation in this topic. And uh, they came up with conclusive evidence that uh, she was... A journalist wearing the press, uh, the press uh, vest, and she still was shot in the head in a camp in Jenin by the uh, by an IDF soldier. Uh, back to the point. So you could see at her funeral, which was a Christian funeral, uh, you could see bells, uh, church bells ringing, while mosques are going off at the same time, while people are saying Allahu Akbar, which people 
uh, sometimes think is a terrorist claim, but that just means God is great, uh, and uh, Muslims use that most of the time. So you could see it's a sort of uh, unification, and uh, that scene really proved to us that it's really just uh, the Palestinian uh, uh, heritage and ethnicity that's uh, us on one, th one side and then the Israeli-Jewish ethnicity on the other. Yeah, to, to respond to that, if the Israeli government does use the inability to coexist based on religion argument, to me, that only delegitimizes their own side because it shows a lack of commitment to the core principles of democracy. No, no, when I say delegitimize, they use it to, uh, as a sort of fear-mongering. To suppress, not just to suppress, but as a sort of, uh, as a way for the, to make the Jews, like the, the Jewish population, fear the other side, which is a Muslim population, because Jews and Muslim have a, like a, like a long history of... Uh, so so are, are you saying that Israel... Um, says the Muslims can't coexist with us. Is that how they put it? No, no, no. They don't, they don't tell you that. Maybe you all can weigh on that. I can uh, tell you that there is like a lot of agenda around like uh, Islam being a very like violent religion, which I don't necessarily believe. Uh, like there is a lot of push around like uh, is, uh, Islamic people don't, uh, Muslims don't want to like make peace with you. But it's, I agree also that it's like the ethnicity in general. If there is any like religious push, it's the, it's Judaism and like, uh, somehow relating it to the right, despite many core beliefs, uh, of, uh, like the current, uh, ultra orthodox being like very like economically left. That makes sense. Can you explain ultra orthodox and economically left and just the political environment in general in Israel for the listeners who don't know? Mm. Not sure I can explain economically left. I can try. I can explain that the ultra-Orthodox are uh, like religious people who probably, I'd say, take the worst part of, parts of a religion and apply them uh, in a very hateful way, at least currently, towards uh, several minority groups, that including the Palestinians. Uh, I can maybe explain so I can try to weigh in on uh, what UV meant by economically left. So in Israel, right and left uh, isn't isn't so similar to the U.S., for example. In Israel, right and left is based on, in my opinion at least, uh, political agendas. Uh, right is uh, like associated with uh, occupation, uh, conservative, uh, ultra-orthodox, and then left is more progressive, uh, LGBTQ, uh, 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 like not anti-occupation, but there are some of like far which are considered far far left extremists that are anti-occupation. Uh, so what's so different is that it's not so much based on economics uh, like it is here in the U.S. And I think uh, that is why Yuval had to stress economically left. So we understand the weight now of the conflict and the history somewhat of it. But how exactly has the conflict impacted the daily lives of Israelis and Palestinians? And how does it currently impact the daily lives? It, sometimes it's difficult for us Americans to understand exactly what the results of what we read in the news are. I would 
probably have Radi answer this one as well because I live in center Israel uh, to everybody listening that would be near Tel Aviv and that is a relatively peaceful place it's far from most of the say borders uh, it's not like it's not a big target for many people and I don't live like directly in Tel Aviv which does occasionally get terrorist attacks so I'd say like of uh, anywhere people live in Israel I'd experience it the least but I, uh, I would also say that like many people still feel the need to weigh in on their opinions on the conflict despite maybe experiencing it uh, less than other people. Like my school is pretty overwhelmingly right, surprising for a very progressive city because uh, right-wing people are also uh, often associated with like p- uh, patriotism and like love for the army. And people very much like uh, love the army. They uh, they feel like it protects them. So wait, uh, many people feel protected by the army in my school, for example. I uh, n- should feel protected by the army, but like uh, for the last year, I've tried to put myself in the shoes of people who might not, and uh, it is very scary to see like. Uh, people armed with guns like in on the same bus as me if I don't feel necessarily protected by them and like as little as I do experience the conflict I still uh, occasionally do like uh, last year or perhaps the year before that there was an operation like every summer there are operations people are met in the summer all the time and there was a rocket uh, that landed very like very close to my street like you could see the smoke you could smell the smoke and that was probably the closest encounter i ever had with like the really scary reality that some people live on a daily basis and i never want to experience that again all right so the question was how does it affect our lives today right Daily. And you live in Israel, but I know you have a lot of friends and family probably in Palestine. Yeah, right. You can reflect their emotions too. All right, so I could make the claim that I, I, I live a pretty privileged life. Uh, privileged not objectively, but based on uh, if, if I compare it to Palestinians living in Palestine and Gaza and, and, uh, and uh, such places, I will still provide uh, some ways how I feel I'm not getting uh, justice. And then I'll provide you with some uh, with some troubles uh, Palestinians have to face on their daily lives in uh, in West Bank and Gaza. So first off, uh, to start off with uh, inside Israel, uh, the uh, the simplest thing I can say is the is the different budgets given to different cities. Uh, I live in Nazareth, uh, which is uh, oh no, sorry, I don't live in Nazareth. I live in uh, Nazareth. Elite, which means uh, like Upper Nazareth in uh, in Hebrew, and uh, it's a mainly Jewish population there, and the city is very advanced. The houses are nice, the streets are clean, uh, the city gets a lot of budget. But then you can go to normal Nazareth, which is like a five-minute drive away uh, across the city, and as soon as you cross the street, you start seeing, uh, you know, dirtier streets. Uh, uh, dirtier houses, closer together houses. You could see how uh, how how the budgets differ. All right. So uh, some other ways the Palestinian uh, 
the Palestinian Arab communities neglected is uh, the police force in uh, in Israel. Recently, there have been uh, many massacres uh, due to gang violence happening in Arab-populated areas. And I say recently, but it's always been like this, but recently there's been a, a spike. Uh, and whenever these uh, killings happen, uh, the the police, I don't want to say, like, outright ignore it because that wouldn't be, you know, politically correct of them to do and they care about their image. <laughs> not, not to the best extent, but they still do. Uh, but the police ignore some of the cases. There are many cases uh, where the police know the killers, but they can't touch them or do anything to them because they work with the uh, Shabak, which is the Israeli intelligence agency. Uh, which is uh, something uh, frustrating. I could go on and on about this, uh, but I think I should provide you with more important examples of what the Palestinians in uh, in West Bank and Gaza face. Of course, I can't experience this on a daily basis, but I've been there a couple of times. And uh, to start off, we can start with checkpoints, maybe. Uh, you know, for me, because we have uh, the Israeli uh, IDs and passports and the Israeli... Uh, uh, car plate. Uh, for me, passing out and in from the West Bank is uh, pretty easy. But uh, then also going to checkpoints uh, inside and uh, outside the West Bank. Uh, I also I will I always see uh, people with uh, with Palestinian car plates being treated differently and treated differently. I mean, uh, having random searches for them, uh, guns, a rifle always pointed at the car. Uh, just treated with like neglect and disrespect and uh, humiliation. Sometimes they even take you to. Uh, I've heard of many of my friends' stories uh, where their relatives or even them sometimes have been taken to interrogation rooms and left there for hours without a reason. Uh, they've been stripped of clothes. They've been humiliated in uh, in, uh, in really uh, in really sad ways. Uh, so that's. Uh, that's one uh, side. And then you can look at Gaza. In Gaza, of course, we know Hamas is in control, which is uh, unfortunate, I might, uh, I might say, uh, because it means that uh, in times of conflict, like Sheikh Jarrah last year, uh, Hamas responds to Israeli uh, violence acts uh, with rockets. And uh, you, of course... Uh, have to Israel, of course, has to respond back, uh, but they do so in such uh, unproportionate ways, uh, killing hundreds of civilians, uh, sometimes targeting schools, hospitals, uh, just civilian areas, uh, which can uh, sometimes people make the claim that uh, that terrorists hide among these uh, areas, but I believe that a, a stronger responsibility lies on the on the Israeli army to to take in to take this into account and to have uh, have a more sensitive side, I guess, towards the towards the Palestinian civilians. Uh, you want me to talk about the houses also? All right. So in the West Bank in Gaza, there isn't much place to uh, expand. Uh, so there's a there is a there's a common phenomena that happens a lot uh, in such areas. Uh, people don't have places to expand sideways, so they start going up. And uh, you start seeing really crowded houses of like families of 30, 40 living in one, uh, one single house, which makes, uh, 
living experience really tough, not to mention traffic and all that other uh, stuff. What about getting forced out of their house? Yeah, getting forced out of their houses. Uh, I can't talk about that that much. I haven't experienced that. Uh, so I can, no, I can still say. Uh, uh, the Israeli government sometimes randomly uh, uh, takes down houses, claiming that they don't have a permit for the house. We can uh, look at Sheikh Jarrah last year, which What's wasn't, that? which wasn't, uh, yeah, I'll explain, which wasn't tearing down houses, but it's another example. Uh, all right, I'll describe a base level. Uh, Sheikh Jarrah is, a, is an area in East Jerusalem, uh, which uh, is important because in May 2021, I believe it was, uh, there was an uproar uh, because, of a, because of an Israeli government, uh, Israeli Supreme Court legislation that uh, kicked uh, many, uh, many, many Arabs out of their houses in Sheikh Jarrah. Uh, one of them being my friend uh, Zena, which was in this program last year, if you guys remember. Uh, she shared with us a story. Yeah. Uh, so she told us last year that uh, she was uh, asleep at 3 a.m. when she heard loud bangs on the door. And then she went to open it, and uh, there were soldiers there uh, ready to take her house because they claimed she doesn't have a permit for the house anymore. Uh, and uh, they wanted to replace uh, replace the people living there with the uh, Jewish uh, settlers. So anyways, uh, the soldiers came in, started knocking on the door. Uh, they told her to go get her mom, and she told us she froze. She couldn't do anything. For the first time, she felt helpless. I don't want to talk about her emotions. I don't have credibility for that. But basically, yeah, that's what happened. Yeah, I, I think I often say, or I've said multiple times, that I believe in Israel's right to exist. But... That certainly doesn't mean I think Israel is a shining beacon of moral virtue, and especially not in this scenario. Uh, Sheikh Jarrah is a very complicated situation because the legal title of the houses in this area switched hands multiple times before, during, and after the 1967 Six-Day War uh, because that area of East Jerusalem was taken by Jordan and then taken back by Israel. And I think that it's very clear that Israel would have a bias towards granting its own citizens the right to the legal title of these houses. And I don't see why this isn't an issue left up to international law. But I would add that it, in some cases, if not most cases, when you say own citizens, uh, many of the people being kicked out of the houses do have Israeli citizenship. They're being kicked out for being Arab. So... The, these people, these people, in theory, should be considered Israelis with Israeli uh, Israeli citizenship. Well, I I would say in those scenarios, what evidence is there that those rulings are based on race? All right. So the claim can be made that uh, this evidence is uh, somewhat circumstantial and uh, subjective, but when you see so many individual scenarios stack up, of purely, have you heard any stories of Jewish? people being kicked out of the houses? The answer to that is probably no. Uh, the, 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 this court can't straight up say, uh, you know, the, we're kicking you out because you're Arab, uh, but it can still have, uh, it can still be highly uh, discriminatory. So, Kellen, you mentioned that you think that this should be left up to international law. And that leads me to my next question which is what role do you guys think the international community should play in resolving this conflict? 
Well, uh, in regards to Sheikh Jarrah, there should certainly be an international law set of standards for what grants people the right to their house. Because if that land changes hands between different governments, then who gets to live there is a very difficult question to answer. Uh, in general, I think it's the role of the international community to ensure democracy and human rights for as many people as it can, in whatever way that looks like. All right, I do agree with that. But I think, uh, first off, before talking about international law, you have to, uh, you have to abide by it in all areas. And when Israel is known to commit many war crimes, using Shirin Abaka as an example, the assassination of press, uh, I don't, I don't think Israel has credibility to say that they follow uh, law. Well, I, I certainly agree with that to some regard, but in another, I, I think there's no country that hasn't committed war crimes to some degree or violated international law to further their own interests. And I would say organizations on the Palestinian side, such as Fatah, the PLO, the PA, Hamas, have committed such heinous acts of terrorist violence against Israel that it's in a much greater proportion disregarding that those laws and standards. Right. But again, these groups are groups. They're not whole countries. And to, to make the claim of, uh, of other countries violating international law, other countries, when they violate international law, they're held accountable. Uh, many restrictions are, are, are held to them. But Israel, in so many cases, and it's still ongoing today, has uh, not abided by international law and has, has, has had nothing, no backlash. First of all, I'd argue that there has been backlash. For for the very least, there has been social backlash. Like, I know it's, like, relatively unpopular outside of maybe Jewish communities, say, America, to support uh, the Israeli narrative and, like, Israel as a, whatever, a, as a state. So, as we're wrapping up here, I've really got one final question what do you think the future holds for Israelis and Palestinians and what might be the best solution in your eyes? All right. So what do I think the future holds? I would hope to say that the future holds some sort of solution long term, uh, even though now it's not looking so uh, bright. But uh, in a perfect world, I believe a one state solution would be the most uh, beneficial and the easiest to reach. Because I believe to reach a solution, uh, you've discussed this in dialogue many times, you have to have sacrifice, you have to have humility, you have to sacrifice some of your goals and uh, come, come up with a compromise. And uh, I believe that the, uh, usually there's two solutions for this issue, a two-state solution and one-state solution. And I believe that having a two-state solution would mean that uh, both sides would have to sacrifice so much uh, land that... I don't see how either side would be willing to. I consider myself a very like positive, up-and-coming person, but uh, I see a pretty grim future if I'm looking at it realistically. Uh, I believe, uh, like within within my heart, that uh, within my lifetime I will witness a civil war. Uh, at least in Israel within the civilians, because Israel in itself is so divided between uh, the right and the left, the secular and the uh, orthodox and ultra-orthodox, and uh, the people who believe uh, the 
to the end of the occupation and people who think we haven't even started. And but ideally I really just want us to like to have peace. I want like I think if people listen to each other more then we could find a solution. What solution? I don't know yet. This is something I'll have to like figure out for myself. I'm going to be quite vague for now, but I think things are going to get worse before they get better. I also think that if we don't start pushing for what we believe is going to lead to the best possible solution now, then when the dust settles from whatever that worse is, things definitely could be much worse. Well, I don't think I can end it on that. That sounds <laughs> very ominous. I mean, what what do you guys think we need to be doing? Like what can be done today? I think the best thing we could do is hope no, I'm kidding. The best thing we could do is teach uh people from young ages that we can coexist and that we can learn to listen to each other. Like I think why uh, the program we're all a part of is so important is that it shows us that despite having like maybe different opinions or different like uh, ideas or different dreams, we can all still like, we can coexist, we can talk and we can listen. I think that's the brightest future we can hope for, like a future where we can listen to each other. I, I would strongly agree with you, Val. I think uh, listening should be the initial first step taken to work towards a better future. Uh, that is why the program we're in, Hands of Peace, right now works so well. Uh, and, and by listening, I don't mean just listening. I mean listening and understanding, understanding where the other side comes from. You may not agree with the other side, but just understand where they come from so you can... Uh, uh, so you can have some humility to come up with some sort of compromise and meet somewhere in the middle. That's a really good point. It's pretty hard to follow that up. Um, what was the... I, I think the biggest thing we need now is accountability on both sides. And I think not enough people are standing up for what they really believe in. They're pushing things they want rather than what they actually need. Uh However, uh, I think uh, like this, uh, the current political state has like quote unquote woken woken up many people, and I think maybe activism will start getting uh, much more like uh, severe and serious in Israel. So uh, there is hope yet. All right. Well, I think the most we can do is just continue uh, having these difficult conversations. So thank you guys so much and. Thank you all for listening and hopefully pushing your boundaries and for tuning in to another episode of Voices Across the Border. Mm-hmm.